This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Who is going to, um, who also gave us a wonderful performance. What was your character? 
Chorus Number Two. <laughs> <laughs> that amazing name, Chorus Number Two. And then we all think that Richard in high school acted because uh, he was so great. Um, the uh, in any event, uh, Richard, when he's not Chorus Number Two, is the Bernard D. Meltzer Professor of Law here at the law school. He's particularly well suited to guide us through this afternoon's event, as he's one of the country's foremost experts in criminal law. He focuses his scholarship and his teaching on criminal law and procedures, social norms, inequality, and the expressive function of law. Richard's one of our most active and engaged faculty members, and I'm pleased to ask him to come up here and introduce our plenary speaker. So please, chorus number two. <laughs> It's an exciting day. Um, I've enjoyed all of our uh, law and literature conferences, but I was particularly happy to have one uh, focused on criminal law. Um, I enjoy crime fiction and mysteries, and particularly those who depict the law and the lawyer. Uh, if you've uh, been in my office, you may have seen, for example, the movie poster of the great film Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, for decades in uh, crime fiction, uh, actual or accurate law was uh, a fairly uh, rare commodity, uh, and that was uh, before uh, Scott Turow, who I'm honored to introduce today. Um, he is a bit of a hometown hero, having been uh, born and raised in Chicagoland, and uh, is uh, uh, the rarest of things in a crime novelist, an actual lawyer, and not uh, a former lawyer. Um, Mr. Turow's first job out of Harvard Law School was as an assistant U.S. attorney uh, here in Chicago. His career was uh, one of great distinction, serving as lead counsel in a number of prosecutions related to corruption in the legal profession, especially those connected to the infamous Operation Greylord, uh, federal investigation of corruption into the Illinois judiciary. Um, after uh, eight years there, he became a partner at what was then Sonnenschein, uh, Knapp, and Rosenthal, uh, now known as Denton's, where he remains a practicing attorney today. Um, now, uh, most of our students are last too young to remember uh, the fall of 1987. Um, and, uh, but then it seemed like everyone was reading uh, Tro's uh, uh, brilliant first novel, Presumed uh, Innocent. My wife and I read it aloud to each other. Uh, it was a book full of details that uh, only uh, a working lawyer could get right. Um, uh, of course, uh, uh, many uh, you know, of our students know Mr. Turow from his one of his nonfiction uh, works, 1L, um, which is uh, very widely read, uh, I guess as a law professor and somewhat uh, worried about how uh, grim uh, the account is of, uh, of, of life in law school, but then I remember it's uh, Harvard Law School. The dean was just talking about our performance uh, of scenes from the Oristaya, and um, it's, uh, it, I have to note the connection to um, the, uh, Mr. Turow's latest uh, novel identical, which uh, is uh, set in a city not entirely unlike Chicago, um, and uses classical Greek characters as inspiration. Um, the novel focuses on the twi twins Cass 
and Paul, uh, as in the mythological twins Castor and Pollux. One of them is a prisoner who pled guilty to the murder of his girlfriend, Athena Cronon, daughter of their father's great rival, Zeus Cronon. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's particularly appropriate that, that this has uh, come together today. We also had a wonderful musical interlude, and uh, here too is a connection I should note, at least as I understand it, Mr. Trow is a musical performer. Uh, he sings regularly with an all-novelist band called the Rock Bottom Remainers, um, or I think this is an alternative title, and uh, 40 New York Times bestsellers, One Lousy Band. <laughs> as the lead guitarist Dave Barry says, they play music about as well as Metallica writes novels. <laughs> and uh, so we are, we're greatly honored to have you here, whether you sing for us or not. But join me in welcoming Mr. Uh, Scott Jarrell. I 
have a job to do. It is not that I have grown uncaring, believe me. But this business of accusing, judging, punishing has gone on always. It is one of the great wheels turning beneath everything we do. I play my part. I am a functionary of our, of our only universally recognized system of telling wrong from right, a bureaucrat of good and evil. This must be prohibited, not that. One would expect that after all these years of making charges, trying cases, watching defendants come and go, it might all have become a jumble. Somehow, it has not. I turn back to face the jury. Today, you, all of you, have taken on one of the most solemn obligations of citizenship. Your job is to find the facts, the truth. It is not an easy task, I know. Memories may fail, recollections may be shaded, the evidence might point in differing directions. You may be forced to decide about things that no one seems to know or to be willing to say. If you were at home, at work, anywhere in your daily life, you might be ready to throw up your hands. You might not want to make the effort. Here, you must. You must. Let me remind you, there was a real crime. No one will dispute that. There was a real victim, real pain. You do not have to tell us why it happened. People's motives, after all, may be forever locked inside them. But you must at least try to determine what actually occurred. If you cannot, we will not know if this man deserves to be freed or punished. We will have no idea who to blame. If we cannot find the truth, what is our hope of justice? So I, I want to talk about how uh, the very circuitous route uh, that took me to write that uh, to become a crime novelist and a lawyer. Um, and uh, the latter was quite a surprise to me. When I left home at the age of 17 and went to Amherst College in 1966, uh, I was hungry uh, to become a novelist. Uh, that was my great dream. It had been born first when I read The Count of Monte Cristo uh, and was totally captivated by the novel and somehow thought probably inspired by my mother, whose dream was to be a novelist, uh, that it would be, if it was that exciting to read a novel, imagine how much more exciting it must have been to write one, to feel the story come to life within you and to live with it for a longer span of time. Uh, so I went off to Amherst, uh, determined to become a novelist, and was dashed to discover upon arriving that there was no such thing there as a creative writing class. Uh, of course, if I had spent more time looking at the course catalog uh, rather than the magnificent landscape, which had caused me to want to go to Amherst College, uh, I would have known that. But instead, I sort of um, uh, approached in the state of bewilderment uh, the faculty and said, well, why don't you teach creative writing here? And uh, one of them explained to me that Creative writing had no more intellectual content than auto shop or basket weaving. Uh, and secondly, you couldn't teach anybody to be a novelist or a poet any way those people are born. Uh, of course, if I had wanted to be a concert pianist and they had to talk to somebody in the music department, they would have mentioned the need to practice.
Um, so I came home with uh, that first summer with no instruction in creative writing uh, and uh, determined uh, a couple of things. Uh, one was that, of course, I had to get a job. I was a college student. Uh, and uh, the other was that I was going uh, to try to write a novel on my own because nobody else was going to help me in this task. Um, and what I uh, did that summer uh, during the day uh, was I became a substitute uh, letter carrier in Glencoe, Illinois. I was a mailman. Um, and uh, post office employment, uh, as uh, Herman Melville and uh, Eudora Welty uh, have uh, recorded, uh, as uh, its interesting aspects. Uh, in my case, uh, was a pretty steep learning curve. I was overwhelmed at first by the need to sort of sort the route and then deliver it. Uh, but it was one of those tasks that um, after a number of weeks I had easily mastered to the point that I discovered that uh, I did not, uh, did not take me the eight hours allotted uh, to deliver all the mail. Uh, and so one time I made the mistake of uh, coming back to the post office early. Uh, and at that point, the chief clerk, uh, a fellow named Walter, who retired only a few years ago, uh, took me down uh, to the basement in the employee's uh, lunchroom and explained to me in very colorful terms uh, what might happen if I was unwise enough to come back to the post office early ever again, and that I was due to appear only at 3.15 when I was scheduled to punch out. So that meant I had between an hour and two hours every afternoon to myself. Uh, the only air-conditioned building in those days in downtown Glencoe was the library. So I decided I would cool my heels as were in the library. And once I was there, I realized that I knew what I should do, which was to read uh, what I had surely learned during my first year in college taking English classes was uh, the leading candidate around for the title of greatest novel ever written. That would be James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, I had read Portrait of the Artist as a young man. I read the stories of Delmoner. I was uh, beguiled by all of them. Uh, and so I decided that you know, I would find Ulysses on the shelf. And thereafter, every day for the next six weeks, for an hour to two hours, uh, every afternoon, I read Ulysses. And uh, when I was done, I had come to a number uh, of observations. The first was, of course, that I had read many of the most gorgeous sentences uh, that I'd ever encountered. Uh, it was beautiful writing. Uh, the second observation was that this was not a novel uh, as I sort of thought of novels. It wasn't a novel like The Count of Monte Cristo. It wasn't even a novel like The Portrait of, like Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in the sense that I was not really carried through Ulysses uh, by concern for a character and what would happen uh, to him or her. Uh, this was, at some levels, a novel about writing a novel. Uh, and it was hard. It was hard reading. I was not unhappy that the taxpayers of the United States were paying me $2.52 every hour I spent at it. Uh, and, uh, but the third thing, and perhaps the most striking to me, uh, was that the library's loan copy of Ulysses was always there uh, when I went uh, to look for it every day. So here I was in a 
very affluent uh, community with a very high educational level. Uh, and enigmatically, no one else in that town uh, wanted to read the greatest novel ever written. And I began a, a long uh, a dialogue with myself about the question uh, of whether it could really be the greatest novel ever written if nobody else in an affluent, well-educated town actually wanted to read it. Uh, the one thing that I concluded over many years um, is that um, whether novels appeal to a very narrow elite uh, or a smaller or a larger, uh, but in some ways more humdrum audience, that the aspiration, at least, of art ought to be to create universals. That, uh, and that, as I was to express it some years later when I was a, a writing fellow at Stanford, uh, you know, to me, the greatest novel ever written would have to be appealing to both a bus driver and an English professor, and exciting to them both. So uh, that, when I came home from writing Ulysses in the, during the day, I did something very different at night, uh, which is that I wrote a novel. And I wrote a novel, as I said, because nobody was going to teach me how to write a novel, and I figured I may as well just plunge in and do it, which, of course, is the only secret ingredient there is. Uh, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, is a fancier of my books, and I once wrote him uh, a note back in response to one of his saying that at Nike, they had stolen the novelist's slogan, namely, just do it. Um, and uh, what, what I wrote naturally, without training, uh, Ulysses notwithstanding, was a novel about two uh, young men from uh, the north side of Chicago, as I had once been, who ran away, uh, followed the Mississippi down to New Orleans. Uh, and there, uh, in New Orleans, they witnessed uh, the murder of an African-American prostitute. Now, um, it was, in other words, a crime novel, even though I didn't realize that. It was 1967 by then. I was a veteran of the civil rights movement. I thought it was a civil rights novel uh, about the bad ways of the old South. Um, but uh, I finished the novel over the course of the summer. Uh, Martha and others will probably find it amusing that I called it Dithoram. Uh, and uh, perhaps over dinner, Martha will explain to me why I did that. Because um, I, uh, I don't remember exactly what that term means. Uh, it's some kind of Bacchic dance. Uh, but apparently, Richard, I've been invoking classic themes in these novels uh, uh, for a long time. Um, Dithoram went the way of many novels that uh, I was to write uh, thereafter, which is to say I sent it to New York with a uh, stamped self-addressed envelope, uh, and with a passage of time it was returned to me in that stamped self-addressed envelope, uh, usually with a firm form of rejection letter. And uh, the, uh, my roommates, my three roommates, of course, noticed that this was happening as I you know, trudging back from the mailboxes with the manuscript under my arm every couple of weeks. Uh, and of course, being uh, you know like young men, always they decided to torment me about it. And the way that they tormented me was uh, by pointing, by reading me to me uh, statistics that have to appear in Time magazine one week, uh, showing.
showing that Mickey Spillane, uh, the crime writer, was the best-selling novelist in the world. Uh, in those days, Mickey Spillane had sold 18 million copies of his books. Uh, and uh, I, of course, responded, uh, having learned not much in a year and a half in college, but certainly having learned how to be pretentious, uh, oh, that's just junk. I could write a novel like that in three weeks. And my roommates looked at me and said, well, what kind of junky novel could you write in three weeks? And it turned out that I had—I uh, actually had an idea for a junky novel uh, that somehow was right near the, you know, the, the front of my mind. And my idea uh, was, as I said, a civil rights uh, movement veteran. I thought what the United States needed uh, was a uh, black superhero. And it happened that I had one in mind. Uh, it was called John Henry Steele, The Protector. And John Henry Steele, The Protector, uh, was the uh, son of a wealthy white uh, industrial magnate and, the, uh, and a you know, famous uh, African-American jazz singer named Lena Horne. And John Henry Steele uh, turns his back on his father's business and instead becomes a protector, that is to say, a kind of private secret service uh, who uh, keeps people alive and has sex every 20 pages. And uh, my roommates thought that this sounded like a splendid uh, outline for a novel. And so they made me the following offer, that they would uh, go to class for me for the next three weeks, take notes, outline papers. Uh, I would sit at home and write uh, John Henry Steele, The Protector, day after day. In the three weeks, I said I could do it. And then, of course, uh, when we sent it to New York and riches befell uh, me, I would actually divide them four ways. <laughs> and uh, uh, two of the roommates went on to become uh, corporate lawyers, the third, the uh, chairman of Northwest Airlines. And I always look back and realize that I was history's first victim of an LBO. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I did it. Uh, history, unfortunately, intervened. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was killed uh, that spring, uh, an epical event that changed the United States for decades and decades to come, uh, and made it totally unacceptable uh, for a young white college student to be writing uh, a book about an African-American anybody. Uh, and uh, that didn't, of course, keep us from sending the novel out uh, with a colorful cover letter describing how uh, it had been um, it had been created. And there was one editor who wrote back and said, "Of course, the novel was unpublishable, but uh, the cover letter might make the start might make a promising start on a book." Um, I decided that I would give up, um, you know, trashy writing and go back to what I thought were my more serious efforts. Uh, and uh, by the time I was a junior, I went to Boston. Uh, a friend had introduced me to a young woman. Uh, and uh, we kind of hit it off. And I remember we saw a movie. I, I think it was The Graduate, although it doesn't fit uh, the timeline. Uh, but at any rate, we got talk to talking, and she uh, described to me uh, having been raped um, the prior summer. And of course, it was a horrifying story. Uh, I wish I could say it was the last time uh, somebody told me a story about being raped, but it's not. 
dream. Uh, and I got up out of my sick bed about uh, 24 hours later and I began to write. And I wrote continuously for the next 12 hours. And that, that was the first moment that I really felt gripped um, by uh, what I was writing in a way I guess I hoped I would when I read The Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, what I wrote, oddly, uh, was uh, a, novel, a short story about a rape. Uh, was later published in the Transatlantic Review. Uh, but in the weird way that um, a writer's imagination transmogrifies the uh, raw materials, uh, <laughs> my short story uh, was written from the rapist's point of view. Uh, and uh, I can explain the choices, but um, the fact of the matter was I thought it was a good story. And as I, as I say, it was the first thing uh, that I was uh, fortunate enough to publish. Uh, when I finished college, I had this dream of becoming a creative writing fellow at Stanford. Uh, I uh, have realized that many of the American writers whom I most admired, whether it was Larry McMurtry or Robert Stone or uh, a lesser known name, Tilly Olson, who was a great icon to me, uh, all been through the writing program at Stanford. I wanted to do that too, and I was lucky enough to win a writing fellowship out there and went out there in 1970. Uh, and as I'd like to say, uh, those were uh, good years uh, and bad years. They were good years in the sense that I was surrounded by uh, a number of, of very talented uh, young writers. Their sheer audacity and being willing to say out loud the same thing that I said, namely that they wanted to be a writer, uh, was encouraging uh, to me and uh, helped confirm me in that identity, which <coughs> frankly is part of the struggle as a young person in the arts. Uh, they were bad years in, the other, in other senses. Uh, one of the things that characterized the community of young writers around Stanford is that while they did not all write like Ernest Hemingway, they all drank like <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, and uh, certainly uh, did uh, a number of other uh, related activities. So there were years of some dissipation. Uh, but I did, of course, try my hand yet again at writing a novel. Uh, this time the novel, uh, which was called The Way Things Are, uh, was about a rent strike in Chicago. And uh, in order to write this novel about a rent strike, I learned about something called the implied warranty of habitability, uh, which was a doctrine then being incorporated in American law, uh, which set aside the old age-old fiction to the common law that a tenant in an apartment is renting uh, only the right to occupy the land below the apartment, and instead was actually renting a dwelling were beginning to say a dwelling which, uh, because that was what the tenant was renting, she had every right to expect to be fit to live in. Uh, now, uh, I will say that I was absolutely captivated by the implied warranty of habitability. Uh, many publishers to whom the way things are, uh, this novel was sent, were less captivated by it. Uh, the heart of the novel, though, was a kind of massive conspiracy. The uh, book has sort of a protagonist who's an ex-draft dodger from, who's come back from Canada, heartbroken, uh, and uh, the young man who tries to 
interest him in activism again, who uh, is, for lack of uh, any other convenient labor, kind of Catholic worker type, uh, socialist Catholic, uh, who uh, keeps digging at the great secret of who owns all of this slum property uh, on the north side of Chicago, only to find that most of it is owned by the Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago, uh, a circumstance that actually proven to be true around Morningside Heights uh, in New York. Um, so, you know, if I looked backwards uh, at what I had been, um, what I had been doing, you know, this massive conspiracy and the way things are, my short story about a rapist, uh, John Henry Steele, the protector, uh, Dithyramb about uh, the effort of these two young men to get uh, justice for the murder of a prostitute, I would have recognized uh, a theme in all of this writing, which is to say crime. Uh, but I was absolutely blind to it. Uh, I didn't see it at all. I thought of myself uh, as Joyce's would-be successor uh, and not as a crime novelist who had any, uh, any heritage at all with that junk writer in Peaceful Lane. And uh, so I, I was um, totally unprepared uh, for the degree to which I found myself entranced uh, by um, the activities of the friends of mine who, uh, during the five years I was out at Stanford, because I taught there for three years after finishing my fellowship, uh, they, they had graduated from law school. And they had now begun working as lawyers. Uh, and the ones who interested me were the ones who were working in the criminal law. I went up to, I remember, uh, I went up to Seattle to watch my friend Jay Rich, uh, one of the roommates who was involved in the creation of John Henry Steele, the protector. And Jay, at that point, was working uh, as an intern in the King County Prosecutor's Office. Uh, and he was trying, <laughs> you know, very, very small traffic cases. Uh, but I still thought it was amazing that, you know, here was my friend involved uh, in the liberty and punishment uh, of other human beings. Uh, another friend, Jeremy Margolis, who'd gone to a little bit ahead of me in school, Jeremy had gone into the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago. Uh, he was not involved in drug dumb cases. They were major cases, and he was also the executive assistant the U.S. Attorney, and I would sit there enthralled as he described these trials to me. I had a friend uh, in Seattle whom I made, uh, may he rest in peace, a man named Jim Hunt, who was a criminal defense lawyer. And uh, I, I listened to Jim's stories about uh, trying cases. Jim, Jim confessed that every morning when he was on trial that he would rush to the, rush to the bathroom and bend over the basin and be sick. And I was so enchanted by the world of criminal law that even that part sounded good. So uh, in, 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 uh, in there lies the tale. Uh, and although it stunned my colleagues in the English department at Stanford, I decided that uh, I would truly live a life uh, of regret if I did not go to law school. Uh, and so I made uh, what seemed to be a dramatic U-turn in my life uh, and decided uh, that I would head off uh, for, for law school. I actually remember 
sitting uh, in the Green Lounge trying to talk to students in this law school and get an idea of what it was like to be here. Um, now, in deciding to go to law school, of course, writing seemed to hang in the balance. I had promised myself my whole life up till then that I was going to be a novelist, and I was unwilling uh, to set that dream aside. Um, because I'd done so much unpublished work, uh, I felt it hard to explain to the literary agent who had been kind enough uh, to represent me for a number of years, trying to sell the way things are to the two dozen publishers in New York uh, who didn't want it. And there's a throwaway line in the letter I wrote to where I said, you know, uh, I haven't been able to find a good book uh, by a law student describing what it's actually like to be a law student. Uh, by then, there was the naval novel Paper Chase, but I didn't think I was likely to fall in love with uh, my uh, professor's daughter. Uh, so that didn't seem to me to describe what I was headed for. Uh, and there were lots of books, frankly, by faculty members telling students you know, how they ought to think about studying the law, but nothing that described what it was actually like to be a law student. And I made this observation mostly as a sop uh, to my agent, thinking that if she happened to know uh, a nonfiction writer, unlike me, I was a novelist, I was an artiste, uh, that uh, she might want to try that out on them. And uh, the way the story goes, uh, she went out to lunch with an editor uh, named Ned Chase, who was, uh, was Chevy Chase's father, uh, and who was every bit as zany as his son. And the two of them basically got started training and they got drunk. And Elizabeth found my letter in her purse. And, uh, they, neither one of them noticed that I was not actually proposing to write this book. Uh, and Ned wrote a contract for it on the spot. And uh, so I get, you know, I, don't know, I get lots of mail from Elizabeth, my agent, but all of it was rejection letters. Here's it's sort of like college admissions. Here's the fat envelope and the contract inside to write one out. And I really uh, didn't dare um, turn my back on that opportunity. Uh, and so, as I like to say, I, uh, I signed the contract and I went off to Harvard Law School to make new friends and to write about them. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, it, 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 during the uh, during that, I, I wrote one out after my first summer in law school. Uh, and uh, at one point, I returned home uh, while I was, you know, engaged in the daily the daily occupation of writing. I was writing fourteen hours a day in order to finish it. And uh, I happened to visit Jeremy, whom I mentioned was the executive assistant U.S. attorney. And the U.S. attorney himself, Sam Skinner, who uh, ultimately went on to become the Secretary of Transportation and uh, Chief of Staff to the first George Bush, uh, Sam walked in and uh, sat down. He was unhappy. Uh, Jeremy was his chief confidant. And Sam was unhappy because his kingdom was about to diminish. Uh, there was a bill in Congress to take to shrink the Northern District of Illinois uh, and uh, to create a new uh, separate Western District of Illinois. Uh, and Sam read out the counties, the list of counties that were going to become part of the Western District of Illinois. And he looked at me and he said, how many is that? And I said, 17. And uh, later in the afternoon, after Jeremy and I came back from lunch, Sam said, I want you to work in this office next summer. Uh, and uh, years later, I 
because you looked so confident when you said so. But <laughs> you'd make a good trial lawyer. Um, so uh, at any rate, I did work there in the, uh, in, in the second year. But I, I get a little ahead of myself because um, Ned Chase, who'd been drunk when he bought 1L, uh, called me up after I finished the manuscript. And uh, he, he said he had just one question for me, which was namely, why did I ever want to buy this book? Uh, and I, I, whatever um, great interest Americans were to take in the law, uh, I, I had no, um, no foreknowledge of that. But I certainly predicted it um, you know, full-throatedly to Ned Chase in order to sell him back the book that became 1L. Uh, because um, Ned was so dubious about publishing the book, I had to go ahead and uh, had to go ahead and publish it while I was still a law student at Harvard Law School. And I changed names, of course, to protect the guilty. Uh, but it's a work of nonfiction, and people read One uh, L and understood, you know, that who they were. Naturally, the people who thought they were uh, favorably portrayed. Uh, thought that 1L was a distinguished work of, literary, of literature. Uh, those who did not think they were favorably portrayed uh, had other opinions, and chief among those with other opinions was one of my first year professors who claimed that he uh, was the basis for the heavy of 1L, a character whom I called Professor Rudolph Perini. Uh, and as 1L came to good fortune and drew good notices. This professor was actually so agitated that he um, called a news conference to announce that he wanted all speculation and that he wanted the world to know that he, in fact, was Perini and he was madder than hell about it. I, I thought that performance would have been enough to, um, would have been enough uh, to satisfy him, but I was wrong. And at the end of my uh, first semester in my third year, uh, at Harvard Law School. Um, one of my friends came running from this particular professor's copyright class. And the last question on his exam uh, went something like this. Uh, you are an associate in a large law firm. Uh, I have to say that I never had an exam question at Harvard Law School that did not begin with that assumption. <laughs> you are an associate in a large law firm. Uh, a senior partner has introduced you to uh, his valued client, Professor Rudolph Perini. Professor Perini has undergone the humiliating experience of having a student, Ray Ripoff, write a book based upon <laughs> Professor Perini's daily classroom lectures. Please list all causes of action that <laughs> Professor Perini can bring against Ray Ripoff. So I, I made two conclusions from that. Uh, one was that I had to get out of there. And I went to work uh, as an intern in the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. That would be to say uh, the uh, Boston uh, State Prosecutor's Office. Was a turbulent time in that office. I worked for a man named Tim O'Neill, uh, who a uh, brilliant lawyer, uh, but also, interestingly to me, uh, a poet read his work aloud uh, in the uh, Cambridge uh, Tavern, Cloud and the Stars. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the district attorney in Boston at that time was uh, a man named Garrett Byrne. 
he was approaching 80 years old, and he was um, he was uh, challenged uh, by uh, another of his assistants, a man named Newman Flanagan, who had risen to prominence uh, in Boston by um, an act of what I thought was pretty blatant race baiting. He uh, prosecuted a, uh, an obstetrician named Kenneth Edelman, who passed away within the last six weeks, uh, for uh, breaking uh, Boston's uh, you know, fairly restrictive abortion laws. He was trying him for manslaughter of a, of a fetus. Edelman was acquitted, but uh, it, brought, it brought Flanagan to prominence, and he actually ended up beating Gary Byrne after, after I left. Um, so I went uh, to the U.S. Attorney's in Office in Chicago. I'd been hired by them. Uh, Sam was gone, but Tom Sullivan was here and, and hired me, although he was very apprehensive about 1L. He, before he hired me, uh, he brought me in, and he had the Code of Federal Regulations in front of him. And he said, you know, I want you to read this, and I want you to read every one of these rules, and I want you to understand that you can't write a word about this job. And he said, and besides, you can't write a word about me. I'll kill you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Tom uh, really was my principal mentor in the law. Every time uh, I get to introduce him somewhere, uh, I'd like to tell that story. Um, the uh, I, I was still faithful to my vow to continue writing, uh, and I tried writing what was a kind of long literary story. Uh, had a new agent, uh, and uh, there actually was a young editor in New York, a man named Jonathan Galassi, who was interested in this long, longish story that I was turning into a kind of short novel. Uh, and uh, when Gail called me to say Jonathan was interested, I said, forget about it. I'm working on something much better. Uh, and this was by the time I was in my second year as an AUSA, uh, and I had begun uh, the book that would be uh, presumed innocent. Uh, I was overcome by what I was experiencing as a prosecutor. Uh, it was, uh, I was seething with you know, riling emotion uh, every day. Uh, the battles that went on with uh, defense lawyers, their occasional underhandedness, uh, the sheer effort that was required uh, to uh, bring somebody who I thought was obviously a crook to justice uh, was sort of startling to me. Uh, the difficulties of discovering the truth um, were also uh, amazing to me. The <laughs> problems with getting law enforcement agents uh, to understand the way lawyers uh, saw the criminal process and, and had to uh, enforce it. Uh, the problems with witnesses, of uh, getting them uh, to tell the truth, uh, or uh, even to know the truth, or recall it. Uh, and so that was what I wrote about. And of course, I said it in Boston uh, to start. Uh, that's what I thought I was writing about. And I wrote about an office where the veteran uh, prosecutor was being challenged by one of his assistants who'd come to prominence with a race-baiting uh, prosecution, uh, an abortionist. And uh, I was just really uh, following the old saw of writing, uh, writing about what I knew. Um, even as I was writing Presumed Innocent, I did not think that I was
was becoming a crime novelist, even as I knew that crime had this immense hold on me. Uh, and it wasn't until I became a supervisor in the office, and I was you know, several years along by then in my uh, writing of Presumed Innocent on the morning commuter train, um, I became a supervisor, and I went up uh, to watch one of the younger lawyers I was supervising uh, try a case. And uh, it was the uh, so-called star witness, the person who was really relating most of the tale about how um, something the community regarded as evil had occurred. And I looked around the courtroom, uh, and I saw who was there, uh, and I realized how spellbound every single person in the courtroom was uh, by this story of what was happening on the witness stand. Uh, and I suddenly realized, oh, crime. You want a universal audience. This, this, this is a subject that creates a universal audience. Um, obviously, the Oristaya shows us how long crime uh, has been a popular theme in literature. Uh, and uh, I don't have a lot that's original to say about why uh, that is the case. Um, I can say for me that I think uh, my fascination with it was um, rooted in childhood experiences that left me feeling that power was being abused toward me, uh, and that I had lots of questions about what was right and what was wrong, and could this possibly be? Um, but I, I mean, it, it's, it's, I think, fairly clear to all of us that, that transgression uh, is uh, of enormous interest. It's inherently of interest, because we are all uh, battling the impulse to do wrong. I, I know here at the university, of Chicago, everybody has a cast iron uh, super ego, but uh, anybody who has uh, observed an infant uh, grow up knows that we are all egocentric savages to start. Uh, and Freud, as Freud taught us, taming uh, these impulses is the great task of civilization and the sad lament sometimes of having to live in uh, society. People can't help being fascinated by wrongdoing because they are all would-be uh, wrongdoers themselves. Uh, in addition, uh, there's a sometimes a sense in a lot of uh, criminal literature, uh, and you see it in the Oristaya, as uh, Clytemnestra is engaged in some of her speeches, that, uh, that the criminal uh, is a more authentic person, freed from social restraint, uh, the criminal is free to be herself, whether it is uh, herself motivated by a lust for power uh, or vengeance for the sacrifice uh, of her daughter. Um, and you know this manifests itself in the criminal world where um, everybody's familiar with the phenomenon that in many cases and in many neighborhoods, the criminals and the cops are separated only by who is wearing the uniform. They share a lot of the same interests and a lot of the same view of the world, and that indeed uh, is true of, uh, of criminal defense lawyers. Uh, most of 
us have very ambivalent relationships with our clients uh, because we cannot help at moments uh, admiring them. And in some ways, this admiration <laughs> is well placed. I always caution people that uh, criminality is one of the great expressions of human imagination. Uh, and uh, this is particularly true in white collar crimes, although sometimes a crime's basis murder is, uh, is committed in an incredibly imaginative way. Um, the, the other point, of course, um, is that um, the, the crime story um, is all about reasserting control uh, over these unruly impulses. Justice, as the Aristide tells us, uh, will ultimately uh, be done. Uh, when I was um, coming to the end of the first draft of Presumed Innocent, I decided that I was going to write a radically uh, new kind of crime novel and not say who committed the crime. It would be you know, the literary equivalent of The Lady and the Tiger. Uh, and uh, with a lot of thinking about it, I realized that I was breaking the rules. Uh, the crime novel, the mystery, exists on the assumption uh, that we can reconstruct history and say who done it with an exactness that the courtroom very often cannot. Uh, and furthermore, that we can say who done it and we can say why. Rusty says that in the criminal process we don't need to tell motives, but literature does. Uh, all narrative works on the convention that motive can be known and understood. Whether that's actually true or not, um, I don't know for sure, but we certainly live inside that box of belief <laughs> that motive can be known uh, and understood. Uh, and uh, that is, I think, the great moral purpose of narrative and literature, which is uh, to let us stand in somebody else's shoes to understand what it is like to be them so that we can truly do unto others uh, as we would have them do unto us. Um, but most mysteries teach a far broader lesson, which is that crime does not pay. The wrongdoer will always be uh, brought to justice in the end. Uh, when uh, Presumed Innocent was in Hollywood, uh, uh, <coughs> the director came back to me and said, um, you know, they, they really don't like the ending of the novel. In the novel of Presumed Innocent, the bad guy gets away. So they wanted to rewrite the ending so that the bad person uh, would go to an insane asylum. And the preview audiences for the, for the movie, uh, fortunately for me, hated that. Uh, hated that uh, ending. Uh, Alan put it to me, well, they didn't seem to like it. And Harrison Ford uh, told me more uh, plainly. He said they threw popcorn boxes at the screen. Uh, <laughs> so you go back and uh, look at Presumed Innocent again, you'll notice that the last shot uh, in the movie is actually the first shot with a new voiceover recorded over it. Um, I, think, I, I think I will stop there except to say that um, I left the U.S. Attorney's Office after eight years and um, I had what would again seem to have been a fairly naive um, revelation. I realized that it wasn't going to stop. Uh, I had begun, been there long enough to see the same defendants 
come around for a second and even thir a third time. Uh, one, uh, one man who had uh, bought uh, suits as a form of bribery for the Attorney General had turned up getting prosecuted uh, in the Board of Tax Appeals uh, investigation. He was bribing hearing officers to reduce real estate tax reductions. And frankly, even after he was gone, and I was doing Graylord, I found evidence that he had paid off the judge uh, and ended up having to drag the representatives of his estate into the grand jury. Um, crime is part of life. Uh, there will always be crime, just as surely as there will always be love. Transgression uh, is with us uh, forever. It is part of living in society. Uh, and uh, as the uh, litigators would say, further he saith not. <laughs> where she's now Professor of Law and Ludwig and Hilda Wolf Teaching Scholar. Um, she uh, uh, co-edited with Martha uh, one of the volumes from a prior law and literature conference um, titled uh, Subversion and Sympathy, Gender Law in the British Novel in the 18th and 19th Centuries. And then uh, my colleague, uh, Judge Diane Wood, is Chief Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit and Senior Lecturer in Law. Uh, joined the Seventh Circuit in uh, 1995, before which he was on uh, the faculty here as uh, Harold J. and Marion F. Green Professor of International Legal Studies. Um, so uh, why don't I start by asking you, Judge Wood, if, uh, if you have uh, a question or comment. Well, that was a wonderful presentation. So my first uh, point is just to thank Scott for thoughtful comments. I love the idea that uh, it actually requires literature to probe into motives. You know, I deal all the time with these sorts of things, too. I mean, fully half of our docket is criminal matters. And you see a story in every one of them, and sometimes you don't have too much trouble figuring out what somebody's motive was. If, if he's robbing banks, you figure he wants the money, right? Um, that's what Willie Sutton said. Yeah, exactly. That's where that is. Right. Um, on the other hand, there are crimes. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office of Lakes had a big priority for child pornography, internet things, and that's much harder to figure out. It's much harder and a little disturbing not to be able to get any sense of, of, of why this happens. You can fall back on easy things and say maybe it's mental illness or what have you. <laughs> but I really think you need to turn to literature in a way and to other secondary sources, sometimes social science research, because it's very unsatisfying to put somebody in prison for 30 years for something that you're not 
really sure you have a handle on. So I think that the kind of, I mean, I totally agree that, that uh, for better or for worse, the crime is, is with us, and it doesn't seem to diminish. And I, I was working on a case just today that I thought, oh, it's all Mr. So-and-so again. You know, I've, <laughs> I've seen his cases a number of times. Here he is. Um, so, so some people are incorrigible. But, but the light that, uh, and the other thing that literature can do that we don't get uh, on the ground is offer some resolution. Some cases, again, you're pretty sure you do know exactly what happened. There are many other cases where, even in the most serious case, a death penalty case, you're just not sure. You know, is this the right person? Because if it is, the person did something unspeakably awful. But boy, if it's not the right person, what are you doing? You know, who was the person out there? And, and so you live with these uncertainties that literature can kind of help you through to the end in a, in a way that you can on the ground. So I guess well, one question that came to mind as you were speaking, Scott, and it was fantastically interesting is, it sounds facetious, but I wonder if today a law student in your situation um, would actually have been writing a blog instead of 1L, and what would that mean? I mean, it would be more instant, and yet there wouldn't be a novel in the same way, and so what that says about these kinds of experiences, and especially sort of first person accounts that are, um, that live on as books in a way they might not, or perhaps I'm wrong about that and I'm showing my age that I think you know, the blogger is not living on in that way. Um, so that's a question. And then following, I think, on this, this idea of stories, I think one thing that's very striking in a lot of crime novels and crime fiction about lawyers, I think, is distinct from police procedurals, uh, which seem like a, dis a different genre is the use of the kind of authorial control, and you mentioned this, and so, I mean, in Identical, the most recent novel, which I just finished reading and really enjoyed, um, there's the, the sort of beginnings of parts that you write in this italic about what, act, it seems clearly to be what actually happened from different perspectives. And that, uh, following on Judge Wood's point, I mean, I think it's a way of, the reader feels like she knows what actually happened and it's interesting to me that crime fiction seems to allow that kind of authorial control. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on either of those points. Shall I respond now, Richard? Sure. Well, um, the, the conventions of the mystery uh, in particular um, are the things I think that have led it traditionally to be regarded as a lesser literary form um, that you know that you do have to say what happened and who did it and why um, and it's formulaic enough uh, that it seems to reduce uh, the freedom uh, that you know you would expect in you know a quote unquote serious uh, novel. So, you know, I think I, I always thought a great deal about it, and uh, I mean, there's obviously truth in the observation uh, that, you know, the novel, the, the, the mystery novel depends upon uh, a um, 
pretty complete reconstruction of, uh, of what happened. Uh, and uh, that by itself, as anybody knows who spent a lot of time in courtrooms, is, uh, that's, that is a fiction of the highest order. Just ask every any historian. I mean, I'm sure that you know that that you know deciding exactly what happened and choosing just one um, you know, one uh, narrative is essentially reductionistic. Um, so that you know that that does work against the mystery as a as a form. On the other hand, um, when you really stand back from it's just astonishing the amount of time that Americans spend sucked into these stories. Um, you know, it's still the leading genre on television. Uh, I think in terms of raw sales, if you throw in the many different forms, uh, you know, mysteries and crime stories are still, the, you know, the, the leading, um, uh, you know, the leading genre in terms of, you know, book sales. Uh, these stories do have an <coughs> eternal appeal, and they're obviously, uh, when you see the same themes uh, in a work of literature, of you know the sort of the classic um, standing uh, of you know the Oresteia, you, you realize that um, whether it's low or high, um, these themes are powerful. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed your story uh, of, of uh, how you became uh, a novelist, and um, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it was fascinating. I think I think people often uh, assume when they don't know that there was that uh, success was uh, easy or obvious, inevitable uh, when it when it wasn't. Um, you know, I have a question which I, I think concerns me because maybe it's too much of a softball given this audience. But I'm kind of interested in, in, in it. So, so let's just let's just assume I'm skeptical about whether um, you know reading literature, writing literature, understanding literature would help you be a better <coughs> lawyer. Um, certainly, the law and literature crowd sort of you know makes such claims that uh, you know if you're um, I mean you know there's trial advocacy ideas about you have to tell the jury a narrative. And uh, so, so maybe uh, someone who understands literature is is better able to figure that out. But then again, you know, maybe it's just you know you, you can be a good storyteller uh, with without that. Um, and then I also wonder if you know when you cross-examine people, uh, if if uh, you know if the idea of empathy and getting in someone's head through you know through literature gives you an experience that helps you you know understand maybe you know why they're lying. Or why they're shading the truth in such a way that if you if you understand that you can either expose it or maybe manipulate it or something. So this is a this is a, a in in this group I guess this is a kind of conventional truth. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, can you disabuse us of this or is this? <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't. Uh, I would not um, argue against the place of law and literature in, in today's law schools. Um, although, uh, I mean, I think its main um, advantage is because of what it does for legal education. 
and how it um, loosens uh, loosens the uh, loosens the bindings. Um, you know, I, a friend of mine went from you know his PhD at Stanford to the English department at the University of Minnesota, and then to law school there. He's now a practicing lawyer, a guy named Mark Savin, and Mark. Um, always like to point out that, um, as James Boyd White does, that the lawyer is a writer, uh, and uh, and that, but that that the lawyer, as a writer, um, is engaged in it possesses a voice, and it's a very restricted voice. Uh, it's a voice that, generally speaking, shuns metaphor uh, of any kind. And it also generally shuns discussion of emotion. Uh, there are not a lot of judicial opinions uh, that talk a lot about love. Uh, and so, to me, one of the great um, one of the great functions of law and literature is to help law students literally recognize the conventions of the law and of the legal voice. Um, so, uh, and and I, you know, and I also uh, there's a passage from uh, uh, from White's The Edge of Meaning that uh, I, I love uh, to refer to from time to time when he talks about the law uh, as uh, and, and I suspect Richard that this is something you talk about too but the, the way that the law um, helps express uh, grievances that are otherwise voiceless uh, and talks about White um, had gone from Amherst to, uh, to uh, graduate school in English at Harvard, and then went and began thinking about law school and sat in, a, in courtrooms, and uh, was very, very mindful of the, the way the law was addressing experience. Uh, and as, as he says, that you know, it was taking what was often mute suffering and giving it and giving it a voice, uh, and I think all of those understandings of what we are about as lawyers uh, is dramatically enhanced when you compare, you know, legal texts implicitly to literature. <coughs> Does it help uh, to have a more subtle sense of, of people's motives, especially I think in the practice of criminal law? Absolutely, absolutely, because. Um, you know, you, you you can, as criminal lawyers often do, you know, badmouth your clients so that you're creating. I was I never understood it when as a prosecutor, people would have to come in and tell me what a crumb their client was. Well, I I knew the person was a crumb. I was ruining their lives. I, I knew that that person was not a good person. Uh, but of course, what the lawyer was trying to say was, I I am not. I'm not that person. You know, I I may have to stick up for him, but I know. That you know that he's kind of a slug, um, but in point of fact, I found in practicing criminal law that you can't really represent somebody without understanding them in some <coughs> ways. And uh, you know, and apropos of Judge Wood's point about child pornography, um, it's it is unfathomable to many of us, and yet because it's unfathomable. Uh, I think it's gone on um, because we we can't stand to contemplate it. Um, you 
know, I, the, the taboos are so strong, understandably, as they should be. Uh, so it was mind-blowing to me when I went down uh, to 26th Street, when I began doing pro, pro bono work down there, and I don't know if it's true today, but half of the cases that um, were coming up at 26th Street, where you know the state court criminal cases are heard, half of them were child abuse cases, child sexual abuse cases. So that's not the same thing as child pornography, but obviously that's some of the same impulses. But uh, anyway, I am a big fan of the law and literature movement. I think it's, um, as I said, I, I, I think um, what it brings to uh, the study of law, just like, frankly, what I studied of, of legal history, um, gives you a, a much rounder sense of what your project is as a lawyer. Okay, we, we are past uh, the scheduled time, but let me, uh, let me uh, ask if there are a couple of uh, questions from the audience. I think we have time for that. Jonathan. Uh, Mr. Schroer, I wanted to ask what it was like for you to go to law schools, or as you say, with the intention of meeting people in order to mm -hmm. write about that, mm -hmm. and how, uh, I'm hoping you could say a little bit about how you think that affected the experiences you had and the way you related to people there, and, or even perhaps influenced the behavior Well, um, many different uh, responses. One, uh, I have never <coughs> pretended, uh, and I always thought it was fairly clear from the text, that, that 1L is the diary of an unabashed neurotic. Uh, and uh, as I said, I thought I was confessing that pretty openly. Uh, when somebody says that they made notes in seven different colors, uh, and uh, they're, they're to a level of compulsiveness that's out, outside the norm. Um, my passion for the law, though, was real. Uh, and so uh, the sense that I was observing my classmates, um, I don't think interfered with my experience very much because, of course, that is who I am. Uh, and I am you know, as liable to write about what I've seen here today uh, as uh, what I saw in my law school uh, classrooms. I was so stirred up by that uh, experience that it was you know, really helpful for me to write about it. And I literally was just keeping a journal at first. And um, you know, there was something obviously cathartic about it. The, the experience, oddly, that I think that had the greatest impact on me was not um, was not the fact that I was writing. Uh, it was the fact that when I entered law school, despite my huge interest in the law, <coughs> I felt after all these unpublished novels that I was a failure. I had declared since I was 11 years old that I was going to be a novelist. And there I was at the ripe old age of 26, having not accomplished that. Uh, and it was hard for anybody you know, to explain to me, certainly I didn't believe it, uh, that you know, there, there was still there was still time. So one um, L is haunted by failure more than more than anything else, but also intense interest in the law. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, Professor. Um, I probably am one of the. I have a practice pointer. I'm an attorney from Anchorage, Alaska, and I was a prosecutor and pursuing my master's in fine arts and creative writing at the very. 
Well, I mean, I was lucky, frankly, to be in a, in a federal prosecutor's office where uh, a lot of the crimes are economic crimes, uh, and you're not dealing with uh, literally, um, as you are often in a state court courtroom, with the worst things human beings can do to each other. And uh, a lot of people in that system become necessarily really hard-hearted. Indeed, uh, it's really a triumph in that system, the people who can uh, understand the role of kindness in a very hard world. And uh, some do and some don't. Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to educate lawyers to be that way uh, and to have a complex understanding motives and uh, you know there's usually an enormous gap in class between prosecutors and the people that they're prosecuting. That is not true in the US Attorney's Office uh, because very often you're you know you're prosecuting people of the same social class. Indeed I spent my entire eight years in the US Attorney's Office prosecuting other lawyers. Uh, <laughs> And so it changes the way that you relate to the defendants. Uh, and, you know, I confess that I sometimes felt very, very sorry for some of the people I prosecuted, even the, the most, of course, at the moment of sentencing. Um, and there was never anybody I prosecuted who I didn't think was guilty and deserved it. But, um, you know, a sense of having some understanding also was often with me. But that was because I was in an environment that allowed it. And, uh, but I was in an office where people talked to each other about books. That's nice. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.